0: part two chapter two part three of johnny reb and billy yank by alexander hunter this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by barry eads chapter two part three gettysburg if lee was paralyzed by reluctant subordinates meade was in the same fix and sickles commanding the third corps a civilian general by the way came within an ace of destroying the army by taking position a mile in advance of the main line without orders and of his own volition meade only discovered the false almost fatal disposition of the third corps when too late to rectify it every precept of military science nay every principle of common sense should have taught sickles that the proper place to station his corps was at the foot of little round top and with that crest crowned with artillery mares heights and malvern hill would have been in comparison an ant mound to a mountain when the assault was to be made by longstreet lee's orders were for them to advance in the center and for ewell to charge as soon as he heard hill's guns it was impossible to secure uniformity to send a message to the left wing of the confederate army a staff officer or courier would have to make a long detour on the outside circumference of the half circle and ride fully four miles hill did not get this order to advance until an hour after longstreet's notice and when hill advanced ewell did not hear his guns and did not move at all general gordon in a magazine article says pressure hard general and constant pressure upon meade's right would have called him to its defense and weakened his center. That pressure was only spasmodic and of short duration. Lee and his plan could only promise success on the proviso that the movement was both general and prompt. It was neither. Moments in battle are pregnant with the fate of armies. When the opportune moment to strike arrives, the blow must fall, for the next instant it may be futile. Not only moments, but hours of delay occurred." doubleday in his book on chancellorsville writes a page remarkable for its truth force and power he says in the histories of lost empires we almost invariably find that the cause of their final overthrow on the battlefield may be traced to the violation of one military principle which is that the attempt to overpower a central force by converging columns is almost always fatal to the assailants for the force in the center is nearly double the strength of the one on the circumference, yet this is the first mistake made by every Tyro in generalship. A strong blow can be given by a sledgehammer, but if we divide it into twenty small hammers, the blows will necessarily be scattering and uncertain. Let us suppose an army holds the junction of two roads. If all close in at once, the attacking force would probably confuse and overpower it it seems easy but practically it is nearly impossible for no two routes are precisely alike the columns never move simultaneously and therefore never arrive at the same time some of this is due to the character of the commanders one man is full of dash and goes forward at once another is tired or overcautious. a third stops to recall some outlaying detachment the result is that the outer army has lost its strength and is always beaten in detail This was written before Gettysburg was fought, and yet how perfectly it fitted the bill. Napoleon's favorite tactics were in defiance of this military rule, and his victory at Marengo and Ulm was in the advance of converging column. But he made his marshals set their watches by his, and at the exact time they were to be at a certain place. Yet he lost his empire from this very cause, and Grouchy's failure to converge at Waterloo caused his ruin." longstreet started to the attack on a hot summer afternoon and his splendid corps struck at sickles third corps had sickles placed his back to little round top he could have withstood the onslaught of lee's whole army for with the fire of his guns and musketry he could have so swept the plain that not a fleeing rabbit could have made the crest safely Sickles has always stubbornly avowed that the position he took was a correct one. Any person who has ever stood on the tower on the crest of Big Round Top with the scene before him as a map could see at a glance what a colossal blunder he made. Had Longstreet moved even two hours earlier, Sickles would not have had the support of General Sedgwick's corps, that at the beginning of the battle was at Westminster and did not reach Gettysburg until between two and three o'clock in the afternoon. There was a titanic struggle for four hours when Longstreet struck Sickles. The shock was so terrific that the Federal Army reeled, staggered, and all but fell. In a battle, time is priceless. Had Longstreet moved even thirty minutes earlier, he would have taken the rock-crown post of Vantage, Little Round Top, without a struggle as long as america shall last and tourists visit that historic battlefield they will wonder at the turn of fate that made five minutes the turning point of that battle for had the Confederates seized it they could have crowned the great hill with batteries and taken meade on the flank would have forced him to evacuate his position five minutes settled it for hood's men were scaling a slope and the Union signal servicemen were furling their flags, when a main regiment which was passing by was ordered to rush to the crest. The sides of Little Round Top are composed of boulders of rock from the size of a paving stone to that of a house. The advance of Hood's men was stayed for a fraction of time, and five brigades from Hancock's and Humphrey's divisions all sent in a double-quick to the summit. Hazlitt's battery reached the top, and among the gorges, crags, and rocks a furious contest raged. One man, behind those granite boulders, was a match for five. The colonel of the 3rd Arkansas Regiment, speaking of the Herculean Russell, said, The hills were so steep, the rocks so sharp, that without scaling ladders it was impossible to advance. Every Federal general officer fell. Cross, Zook, Brooks, and Hazlitt. But the Federal rank and file clung to the rocks of refuge with splendid courage it was a fight at pistol-shot distance and the soldiers of both sides went down by the hundreds but the men of hood's division who had never suffered a defeat met their match in that grim line of blue that stayed their impetuous rush and held them back as longstreet pressed the left center meade threw every man reserves and all into the breach and he committed apparently a monumental error in taking the last soldier from his extreme right two brigades of the West Star Division, thus leaving Culp's Hill undefended. Stuart's Confederate Brigade of Johnson's Division walked quickly in and took possession. This was about seven o'clock in the evening, and the Baltimore Pike was a short distance away. Here was packed all of Meade's ammunition wagons and ordnance stores. If General Edward Johnson had but followed up his advance, he would have struck Meade in the rear when his left was denuded of troops. Such a blow as a fresh division striking at that critical moment, the Union rear, would have utterly routed their army. Johnson made no advance whatever that evening, but assaulted the next morning, after Meade had learned of his error and heavily reinforced his right, Johnson was repulsed with great loss. I asked a staff officer of General Johnson's why he did not advance when there was not a skirmish line to oppose him. His reply was that Johnson said he was afraid the Yankees were leading him into a trap this was certainly a case of a wrong man in the wrong place the crisis came in the second day's fight when humphreys flanked barksdale and was in turn flanked by wright's georgians and Perry's floridians under this flank assault humphreys line broke and crumbled and just as the sun dropped below the horizon the scene was such as beggar's description little roundtop was full of flashing fire from the artillery posted there death's valley at the base showed dimly through the sulphurous smoke every gun on cemetery heights was bellowing the clouds of dust and haze half obscured the scene broken caissons slain horses overturned cannon muskets by the thousands knapsacks canteens boxes of ammunition covered the ground the dead lay everywhere the wounded cumbered the earth by the thousands uncared for forgotten in the maddening fight masses of soldiery half hidden moving standards half seen screams of defiance the yankee hurrah the rebel yell breaking out at intervals officers on horseback galloping wildly shrieking their commands which none heeded it was as if pandemonium had broken loose in the wreck of matter and the crash of worlds more than half of hancock's men were prone in the dust sykes's regulars were torn to pieces and the army of the potomac almost a mob Order and form was lost, and regiments, brigades, and divisions were mixed and mingled together in a mad, swaying mass. Sickles fell with a shattered thigh, and his men, those who were left, broke and rushed to the rear. If a general advance by Hill and Ewell had then been made, the most complete victory since Waterloo would have been the result. But it was not to be the confederate reserves stood stock-still in their tracks the rebel brigades of hayes and Hoke scaled the heights and sixty pieces of artillery fell into their hands as these veterans stood beside the smoking guns they felt that they had the citadel within their grasp and the wild rebel yell echoed from the topmost crest of cemetery heights but no reserves came to support them and with despair and rage in their hearts they retired down the hill hayes in his official report says A little before 8 p.m. on July 2nd, I was ordered to advance, with my own and Hoke's brigade on my left. I immediately moved forward and had gone but a short distance, when my whole line became exposed to a most terrific fire from the enemy's batteries. From the entire range of hills in front, and to the right and to the left, still both brigades advanced steadily, up and over the first hill, when the canister opened upon us in point-blank distance, but owing to the darkness of the evening now verging into night, and the deep obscurity afforded by the smoke of the firing, our exact locality could not be discovered by the enemy's gunners, and we thus escaped what in the full light of day could have been nothing less than a horrible slaughter. Taking advantage of this, we continued forward until we reached the second line behind a stone wall. Still advancing, we came to an abatis of fallen timber and then a third line with rifle-pits where their reserves were these we broke then with a rush we reached the summit and captured the artillery and every piece of artillery had been silenced after a silence of several minutes their lines of battle attacked us and as i had no reserves i retired hayes louisiana brigade which was claimed by the enemy to have been almost annihilated lost but few only twenty-nine were killed one hundred fifty nine wounded and eighty taken prisoners in all two hundred sixty eight men in a letter to the governor of north carolina major tate under date of july eighth eighteen sixty three gives a thrilling account of this charge of hayes he says Longstreet had charged on the south face and was repulsed a p hill charged on the west face and was repulsed our two brigades late in the evening were ordered to charge the north front and after a struggle such as this war has furnished no parallel, seventy-five North Carolinians of the 6th Regiment and twelve Louisianians and Hayes Brigade scaled the heights and planted the colors of the 6th North Carolina and Ninth Louisiana on the guns. The enemy stood with a tenacity never before displayed by them, with bayonets clubbed, musket, sword, and pistol and rocks firm as a wall, yet we cleared the heights and silenced the guns. In vain did I send to the rear for support. The enemy hurried his troops on both flanks, got in my rear, and I had to retreat. On reaching our lines, I demanded to know why I was not supported, and was coolly informed that it was not known we were on the works. To think of the monstrous injustice done us. I assure you that the fighting was no sensation or fancy picture. Such a fight as the Yankees made inside of their works has never been equaled inside the enemy were left lying in great heaps most all with bayonet wounds and many with their skulls broken by the stocks of our guns we left not a living man on the hill nearly a year later when a prisoner of war i discussed gettysburg with federal officers and soldiers and later on after escaping from prison in ohio and making my way through the enemy's country in disguise i talked with the union soldiers who were in that battle and every one without a single exception said the rebs had us whipped once at gettysburg but they did not know it and on asking which battle it was the answer was invariably about sunset on the second day the third day at gettysburg dawned clear and cloudless it should by all precedents have been one of driving rain for there was enough concussion of the atmosphere to have started every cloud that encircled the globe into action lee had one more chance if he could attack at sunup before the shattered regiments brigades and divisions could reorganize victory was certain to an ordinary foe such a stunning blow as that which struck the federal forces the night before would have taken all the fight out of the soldiers but the army of the potomac was as thrice tempered steel man to man i do not think the rank and file were equal to the privates of lee's army for several reasons one was that nearly every southern soldier was a native-born american and until their government was a fixed fact they put all thoughts of promotion aside and in the ranks were men often higher in the walks of life than their officers it was a source of pride to the wealthy well-educated youth to serve as a private soldier it proved his patriotism and the women showed their love and affection very plainly for the men who carried the guns in the union army it was different to remain a private in the ranks was tantamount to confessing a willingness to be a day laborer instead of a boss no rich, well-born, educated northerner, was content to carry a musket after the patriotic delirium which animated them for the first year had died out. There were plenty of foreigners, mill-hands, apprentices, and human driftwood to serve in the ranks, but he who had prestige, brains, or political influence was soon supporting chevrons, straps, or stars. The officers of the Army of the Potomac, educated, proud men, were every whit as brave as those of the Confederate Army, and give the American gentlemen a few hours of daylight, and no matter what the history of yesterday, they will be found ready to meet with steady front any crisis to- today or tomorrow the old anglo-saxon race never showed its undying tenacity and bravery more vividly than it did on that day of july third eighteen sixty three when at noon of the next day the disorganized mass that humphreys acknowledged was beaten at sunset proudly and fearlessly confronted the victor lee yet had a good opportunity to win if he had assaulted meade at daylight on the morning of the third and he so ordered longstreet says i met general lee very early on the morning of the third and anticipating any remark that the commander-in-chief might make i said general lee my scouts have returned with sufficient information to lead me to believe that there are excellent chances of inducing general meade to attack us to which general lee replied by pointing to cemetery hill and saying the enemy is there and i am going to strike him i said in return General, I have seen men fight by companies, regiments, brigades, and divisions, but never anything like you propose. Longstreet again shirked duty and let the whole forenoon pass. It was not until 1 p.m. that the Confederate artillery of over 100 guns opened on Cemetery Hill to sweep the plateau, so as to allow the infantry to assault, and Pickett's Virginians were to lead, supported by McClaw's and D. H. Hill's division of his own, and two divisions of A. P. Hill's Corps, in all numbering some 27,000 men. Longstreet again disobeyed his chief's orders, and only fourteen thousand were formed for the charge. It would have made little difference. The position, so strong by nature, had been rendered nearly impregnable by art, and defended as it was by one hundred and thirty-seven cannon and forty thousand muskets, it seemed like madness to storm the works. Lee thought that if two brigades could reach the summit as hayes and hoke did the evening before a storming column of thirty thousand men could go to the same spot especially if the heights were swept clear by heavy artillery fire but he did not take into consideration that it was dark when the assault was made at one o'clock in the afternoon the confederate batteries opened their fire being on the rim of the circle they had a great advantage in delivering a concentric fire but Colonel Alexander, in command of the artillery, made a grave mistake in not concentrating his fire, first on one spot and then on another. One discharge from his 100 guns on one battery would have annihilated it. Had he given orders to commence on the left center and then range along to the right, he would have not only silenced but crushed the enemy's batteries. At 2 p.m. the artillery ceased and the vital moment came. Longstreet says in his report, I gave the order to General Pickett to advance to the assault. I then found that our supply of ammunition was so short that the batteries could not reopen. The order for this attack, which I could not favor under better auspices, would have been reversed. I have often talked with General Pickett after the war about this charge. He told me he felt supremely confident that his division could make an opening in the line and felt proud to show the army what the Virginians could do and that, of course, he felt assured that right behind his assaulting column were heavy reserves that would hold all he could take. There is one point in this famous charge that historians make no mention of, yet it was a vitally important one, and that was that it was always the custom when the infantry made a charge for the batteries to accompany them. Had this been done, Pickett could have held the heights until succor reached him. Instead of his eight batteries keeping step with him and pouring a furious fire in the teeth of Hancock, only a single one, Captain Miller's, followed him. The madness of Pickett's charge. It was superb, like the charge of Belaclava, but it was not war. Let us see what Pickett and his reserves were going against, and put yourself in the place of one of his soldiers. He started from the woods, and to reach his objective point on the heights, he had to walk one and a half miles. Each man had his gun, bayonet, haversack, blanket, and heavy cartridge box. The line had to move slowly so as to save their strength for the supreme effort. Eighty cannon commenced their practice on the advancing lines. There were two Yankee lines of battle on the Emmetsburg Road behind a stone wall, enough alone to break the rebel advance. These were driven back after a bloody contest. The line had to cross an open plain, and then those guns changed their solid shot for shell. Imagine the scene of that line of devoted men, breasting with heads thrust forward the iron hailstorm. Had the whole valley been wreathed in smoke, the long lines of gray could have swept up unperceived to the foot of the heights without losing many men, and might have stood some chance of splitting the Federal line. But the officer commanding the Union artillery, General Hunt, with the intuition of a born soldier, had ordered his artillery to cease firing, and the dense battle-smoke that had accumulated during the hours of bombardment, slowly drifted skyward, and in the bright glare of the July sun, every rebel soldier's figure was plainly distinct. When a line of battle is on a charge, the order is given before they start to guide to the colors. That is, if a man drops, the one next to him closes up toward the flag, which is always in the center, and thus the line, which gapes continually when men are killed and wounded, is kept intact. Of course, the more men that drop out, the shorter the line becomes. Pickett had two lines in his division, but as the fire became severe, his lines continued to shorten, and before he reached the crest, became so short that his right was in the air and overreached by the attacking line. This allowed a flank fire, which is the most deadly of all a man can kill with a shotgun several swallows sitting on a telegraph wire but suppose he climbs to the top of the pole and shoots down the wire with a raking shot he can bag dozens it is impossible for any troops to keep a perfect alignment under such a fusillade they must either break and run to the rear or rush desperately forward armistead struck the center of the union works which was occupied by webb's brigade this command having lost the pick of its men on the first day had the nerve knocked out of them by the furious cannonading and when pickett's line came surging up the hill they broke despite the frenzied effort of their officers and abandoned their works which was a hastily constructed barricade of fence rails thrown up a few yards in advance of the regular stone wall that ran along the crest of cemetery ridge into this gap dashed armistead with his hat on the point of his sword cheering on his men lieutenant mason one of the few of armistead's men who got out safely told me that night that not over sixty or at most one hundred soldiers got over the stone wall that was abandoned by webb's brigade but there was one command that stood there and died there after the artillery had fled and that was cushing with his battery a more splendid exhibition of valor has never been witnessed for he fought his guns after the infantry support had left him and disdaining to fly he fell at the feet of his napoleons the rest of pickett's men stopped by the stone wall and lying down poured an irregular fire on the confused squads hurrying lines and groups of blue-coats on the level plateau the fire of the yankee artillery on the right and left was concentrated and swept the hillside in the center and every rebel was compelled to throw himself flat on his face to escape annihilation For a few minutes, at least, Armistead's men were out of the rim of this fire, and looked back for the gray line of reserves to push through the breach that Armistead had made. But the reserves had drifted back. There has been a great deal of controversy in the South as to why these troops retreated. The truth of the whole matter is this. The advance was a bungle. The officers of the various commands received no explicit instructions. They were to advance, that was all and no orders were given where to rally in case of defeat had the point just above the emmetsburg pike been chosen where there was a dip in the ground affording security from the fire or even the emmetsburg road the retreat of pickett's division would have been a simple retirement instead of a total rout many brigades of the supporting line became bewildered and marched at random over the smoking plain many halted and threw themselves on their faces and simply waited they were ready and willing, if handled intelligently, but were confused and disheartened. Then Armistead's men stood victors for a brief moment on the crest of the hill. The rest of the division were loading and firing. Most of the soldiers were lying down, waiting for the reserves, and they were ready to join with their comrades in the rush, but when alone and unsupported, the Federal troops closing in on both flanks, the rebel line went to pieces, and it was savoy po. Many surrendered, and many, running awful risk, raced back across the metal-swept plain. Meade put in every available man. It was neck or nothing with him. When Pickett started, the cry went along the lines of blue, Here they come! Here they come! And Meade established a cordon of slightly wounded men, who were ordered to lie on the ground a few paces in the rear of the last reserve and shoot any who attempted to run to the rear. Longstreet says of this fight, the brigades of trimble and pettigrew under the concentrated fire of artillery and musketry after pickett reached the ravine wavered and broke and anderson's division was ordered to their support he was halted and the enemy threw their entire force upon pickett and crushed his division into fragments pettigrew cannot be blamed Hess's division had borne the brunt of the battle in the first of july and his loss was enormous far surpassing that of any division in the army Pickett's loss out of 5,500 men in killed, wounded, and captured was Garnett's brigade, 941, Armistead's, 1,191, Kemper's, 731, in all, 2,710, but of these, 1,599 were captured, leaving 1,101 killed and wounded. The three brigades of Hess's division did not lose a man by capture, but in killed and wounded the first brigade pettigrews lost one thousand one hundred five out of one thousand seven hundred men in line about seventy per cent out of six hundred men in line the second brigade lane's lost three hundred eighty nine and the fourth scales's lost five hundred thirty five in all two thousand twenty nine the losses of some of the north carolina regiments were appalling Look at the famous 26th North Carolina Regiment of Pettigrew's Brigade, raised by Governor Vance, which went into battle with 900 men. Fox in his book states that they came out of the charge, leaving 800 men on the field killed and wounded. No prisoners were captured. This heroic record does not cease here. Company F can duplicate the famous dispatch of Sam Houston. Thermopylae has its messengers of defeat, but the Alamo has none. For Company F, 26, North Carolina, went into the fight with three officers and 80 men, and every man was killed or wounded. So the report of General Longstreet that Pender's men wavered was most unjust. They fell and died, none surrendered, and if the history of the world can show more magnificent fighting, it has never been told in song or in story. Cold statistics prove that while Pickett's charge was magnificent, the steady discipline and pluck of Pettigrew's men has never been matched but once, and that was when Ney's grenadiers of the old guard died in their tracks at Waterloo. The histories of Gettysburg written before the publication of the Republican records do Pettigrew's brigade great injustice. I know that around our campfires we laid the blame of Pickett's defeat to the failure of Pettigrew's North Carolinians to support him and the federal writers fall into the same gross error bates in his book battle of gettysburg says for pettigrew with his green and already decimated levies quailed before the terrific fire of Hayes' men comte de paris in his book says pettigrew on pickett's left does his best to support him his own brigade and that of archer have reached Hayes' line but have failed to effect a breach trimble who is following them closely sustains them vigorously lane's north carolinians have already penetrated the first line of federals drawn up as it is at the foot of the declivity and beginning to scale it he draws near the wall archers and scales's north carolinians have passed the same walls a few minutes before but pettigrew's two brigades on the left have remained in the rear and cannot or will not arrive in time to support him after a contest of short range very brief but exceedingly murderous in which Trimble is seriously wounded his troops and pettigrew's retire even before the two brigades of thomas and perrin have reached their position and while pickett is still fighting on the right if pickett's division had met the fire that pettigrew's men had to contend against not a man would have been left alive to reach the crest of the hill the point where pickett struck the federal line was their weak spot The point of Pettigrew's and Trimble's advance was directly in front of Cemetery Hill. Scales was on the right and in the rear of Archer, with Lane on the left and Wilcox in the rear. As they advanced, Wilcox lost his way in the smoke of battle, and Pettigrew and Trimble were the targets of 50 guns of Osborne's posted on Cemetery Ridge. When Pickett closed up the bridge, too close for the Federal guns to fire, the 40 pieces of hazards turned on the reserves thus ninety cannon were firing on an average three times a minute these guns loaded with grape and canister swept the plain at point-blank distance with a continuing sheet of iron hail added to this the terrific infantry fire did not leave a space as large as a man's hand untouched by a leaden bullet the supporting lines were leveled to the ground pettigrew was destroyed for the time and the federal reserves consisting of the brigades of halls and Harmon's, the ninetieth massachusetts 151st Pennsylvania, 20th New York, and 42nd Regiment of the Line, amounted to 12 regiments, stood four deep, ready to defend the ground, if Pickett succeeded in holding the crest. One man lying down behind a stone wall is a match for three men advancing across the open to attack him. Bates says in his book, as an example of the futility and at the same time the accuracy of the rebel fire it may be stated as an observation of the writer made soon after the battle that the splashes of the leaden bullets upon the shelving rock and the low stone wall along its very edge and behind which were hancock's men for a distance of half a mile were so thick that one could scarcely lay his hand upon any part of either the wall or the rock without touching them all this ammunition was of course thrown away not one bullet in a thousand reaching its intended victim the fragments of fourteen regiments of pickett's division panting breathless smoke-begrimed reached their own lines every rebel soldier who witnessed the scene knew that the great charge had failed but there were no symptoms of panic not a private in the ranks left his place and they waited expecting every moment to see the long lines of blue come surging toward them and they all hoped they would There were many unthinking people in the north who blamed Meade for not attacking Lee after Pickett's repulse. Deluded mortals. The condition of the Federal Army on that evening was desperate. Attack? Why, another day's battle would have disrupted it. On the night of July 3rd, when Lee was making preparations to retreat, sending his staff officers in every direction to hurry up the movement, he was asked by General Pickett if he thought that the Union Army would make an active pursuit general lee's answer was striking and showed how well he understood the situation he said that army meaning Meade's, will be as a brooding dove for the next twelve months he often read of battles in europe where the villages and towns of the enemy are held of the outrages upon the citizens of every house having its billet to lodge and feed so many soldiers of the private dwellings being seized and used for hospital purposes and of worse things still of insult, rapine, and arson. The conquered town of Gettysburg was held by the rebel soldiery for three days, at a time when their blood was at fever heat, and later on when the soldiers were savage with disappointment at their defeat. Yet there was not a single act of violence, nor so much as a spoken word of insult in all that time. One of Archer's command, a captain of the 13th Alabama, who remained in the town wounded, told me that during the first day all the townspeople remained hidden away in their cellars, that on the second and third days, getting over their fright, many came out on the streets. He never saw one of the Rebs even address a woman without lifting his hat. As Lee has said, had Stonewall Jackson been at Gettysburg, I would have established the Southern Confederacy. As Sweden, without Charles Twelfth as the army of parliament without cromwell as the troops of the louvre without napoleon as the revolutionary patriots without washington so was the south without her jackson and impartial history will decide that he was the greatest master of the art of war that america ever produced it has often been said and written that the firm faith and fervent hopes of the patriotic people within the union were nearer despondency and despair in those faithful july days than at any other time but these ideas are all false as every american soldier who fought in the sixties knows for the darkest hours of the american union was in june july and august eighteen sixty four after the battles of the wilderness todd's tavern Spotsylvania, south anna yellow farm cold harbor and numberless skirmishes had been fought and when the lowlands of virginia were literally drenched with blood and when grant's appalling loss of five thousand officers and over sixty thousand men of all arms bathed the north in tears and made the stoutest heart despair gettysburg has been called the high tide of the rebellion and the spot where the gallant cushing fell the high mark. tis not so the tide reached its flood just after cold harbor and it was one year after gettysburg was fought that the star of the confederacy shone with its brightest lustre but as the summer waned the splendor of that star which the world watched with breathless interest grew dimmer each hour until it was quenched forever at appomattox a fitting wind-up of the gettysburg campaign is lee's order to his troops on entering the enemy's territory order number seventy three Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, June twenty seventh, eighteen sixty three. It must be remembered that we make war only against armed men. The commanding general therefore earnestly exhorts the troops to abstain, with the most scrupulous care, from unnecessary or wanton injury to private property, and he enjoins upon all officers to arrest and bring to summary punishment any soldier disregarding this order. From the dim traditions of the Assyrian Empire, from the pages of herodotus or the struggle of Ramesses, we may search the records of hostile campaigns and crusades we may study the histories of the golden age of greece or the annals of imperial rome or the various dynasties of europe but we can find no record of a nobler utterance from the lips of a warrior than that from the pen of general lee which brought comfort and peace unto thousands of northern hearts how many statues monoliths and mausoleums of great conquerors which adorn the parks of both the old and new world on whose base carved in letters of gold can be found a loftier sentiment than this we make war only against armed men in the flush of success the tears of women houseless homeless and shelterless are lost sight of but the south endorsed then as she will forever that immortal decretal penned by lee We make war only against armed men. End of chapter 2